Hello and welcome to Making of the Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today I'm going to be continuing our mini-series on the social life of the Anthropocene. If you haven't listened, uh, this mini-series is meant to basically be a dry run of a course that I might teach if I should pass my comprehensive exams and then write my dissertation and then manage to get a job. And because of that, it might make sense to start from episode one of this mini-series, just so that you get uh, a flavor of what it's all about. In short, this mini-series details a lot of the changes that happen in the modern world, uh, particularly around urban life, as happening because of ecological factors. Factors mostly pertaining to international trade, uh, the rise of cheap energy, and new kinds of organizations. In this week, I'm going to be talking about something I call the rise of the organized society. Um, And this is in two parts. The first part, I'm going to be talking about new ways of work, looking at both uh, where people are working and how they're organizing that work. And second, I'm going to be talking about how new technologies of communication allow people to build up a new sense of their world. So let's start with new ways of working. Well, we couldn't talk about changes in 18th and 19th century employment uh, and have an environmental perspective without talking about probably the biggest change to work of this time period, the factory. We could do a whole class on the factory system, not just like a single class. We could do an entire term's worth of work just discussing what the factory means, how it rose, uh, the varieties of when it made people's lives suck and when it made people's lives a bit better and why and how. But in this, I just want to focus on the ways that factories are organizing people's lives differently. So before factories, working people who made stuff usually made things in their homes. A factor or a seller would come and give them raw material, and then uh, in a family home, people would turn that raw material into things. This work was often differentiated by gender and age. Uh, Women might make doilies, for instance. Men might do the loom work while women spun. And then uh, when this work was done, the factor would come over and buy the stuff off of them. It wasn't necessarily good work, and sometimes this work was really hard and didn't lead to a very good income for families. But starting in the 18th century, maybe around 1780, there starts to be a new way of organizing work that comes to dominate a certain set of industrial processes, mostly around textiles, and that is the factory. So if this were a class, I would show a picture of a factory up on the PowerPoint slide and I'd, you know, describe it a little bit, uh, give the, you know, common outlines of it. In the factory, people go to work at a particular time. There's a bunch of machines there. Uh, Sometimes men and women worked, people had to work hard, and they would often be filtered into particular tasks. And then I'd look to the class and I'd say, okay, so why does the factory rise at this particular time? And I would expect a bunch of different explanations. 
One is uh, really obvious, and that is tied with technology. So a lot of these new technologies, these labor-saving devices uh, that are sprung up in the textile industry are really big. And they're not just really big, but they are uh, often quite delicate. And one explanation for the rise of the factory is that with these big, heavy machines that people now use to do stuff like spinning, you have to move the worker to the work rather than moving the work to the worker. The work becomes less mobile, and so the workers have to become more mobile themselves. There's a similar uh, explanation that goes around the actual costs of equipment. If you pay workers by piece, for instance, uh, they have an incentive to work really hard and even to push themselves and their machinery so that they can produce as much stuff as possible. If you've invested, you know, hundreds or thousands of pounds in a big new textile mill, you don't want your machinery to be pushed to its absolute limits. You want your workers to be able to take care of it when something goes wrong so that this big piece of capital investment lasts longer. And this might be one of the reasons for the factory, so that you can have all of your expensive stuff in one place and make sure it's not misused. This moves us on to some more pessimistic explanations of why the factory rose. Uh, one of the big ones is work discipline. Having everybody in one place let people make sure that workers would be working their damned hardest with these new expensive machines. The idea was that the machines were so expensive that factory owners had to push people really, really hard to make them pay off. If you have a new, you know, thousand pound mill that's not being worked, then you're losing money. And indeed, this has some support. Some of the first factories in Europe were made uh, to solve the hideous problem of child unemployment. And some of the first tech textile factories using these new kinds of technological developments were originally proposed to be worked by, uh, by poor youth, by poor people in the workhouse who were not old enough to get, you know, a real job. But... We should remember that running a factory is not at all easy. If I were a capitalist, I would not want to have a factory. You have to manage thousands of people, manage big heavy machines, make sure everybody gets to work on time, make sure everybody's doing the right thing, and factories are really, like, not flexible. If you have hundreds or, you know, even thousands of people working on the putting out system all in their little cottages, if you want to, say, move from making cotton cloth to making broadcloth or, you know, change particular styles, you just have to tell them and then they do it. But if you have a factory, you have to change all the machines yourself. Uh, you have to maybe buy new equipment and it's quite cumbersome. Early factories, for example, did not use modern accounting methods. And so it was really hard for them to be able to accurately calculate profit and loss. Indeed, before, say, the 1830s, most factories just survived not because they were well-managed, but because the uh, benefit of the new technology was so great that their profits were huge, and they could actually accept a ton of inefficiency. And this fact should make us look askance at efficiency arguments for factories. But perhaps this is not the best place for this extended discussion of the rise of factories. 
Instead, I want to emphasize that the factory made a new world of work for a lot of people. This world of work was spatially and temporally distinct. And that shouldn't be too weird for us. It means you go to a particular place to work at a particular time. And when you're not there, you're not at work. Within that workplace, uh, you can often be pushed as hard as your boss wants. But once you're out of it, your time is your own. And this new factory space was a new kind of social space, one that mixed often people of different genders, ages, and backgrounds together in new ways. And sometimes this could be liberating, especially considering that young people, especially young women and sometimes young men, could be making quite good wages. In some places in the north, in some uh, points in the factory cycle, it actually seems like working class people had a decent degree of freedom. They got married very easily. They were kind of always fooling around and flirting. There was a decent amount of solidarity. It wasn't the, you know, uh, crushing hellhole of efficiency that we might sometimes imagine. But it was sometimes the crushing hellhole of efficiency that we might imagine, especially after 1830, when competition meant that factories started to uh, produce diminishing profits and people had to get more and more worried about the efficiency question. And indeed, the work of the factory was in some ways not very rewarding. It was repetitive. It was hard. It was boring. A lot of managers didn't let people do the stuff that they might do at home to make the day go easier, like gossiping or singing or drinking or taking a break or making your own stuff because you want to. Instead, the focus was always on work. And the factory was dangerous. It was uh, filled often with smoke. In the cotton factories, everything had to be kept humid because the uh, cotton spins better when it's a little damp out. But that means that these places would get swelteringly hot. And because of all the cotton flying around, people would often inhale little bits of cotton fluff, which could lead to cotton lung, which could kill you. And on the flip side, I just want to talk quickly about another set of workers who are coming into their own in the 19th century. And they are also kind of new, and these are the urban professionals. One of the reasons for this is that you get an increasing density of population in cities. And when you get an increasing density of population, it means that there's a bigger long tail for the service sector. If you have hundreds or thousands of people per square mile, you can have uh, economically feasible professions that you can't have out in the countryside. Uh, for example, you might need a doctor for a country town, but in a big city, not only do you have a doctor, but you have a dentist, a surgeon, uh, a person who is an expert in orthopedic problems, a corn cutter, you have a vast differentiation of work in the high density of the city. And also because of the spread of information and books and newspapers, there is an increasingly large number of people with the kind of social and cultural capital that allow them to enter into the professions. So the 19th century sees the birth, or at least the formalization, of a number of familiar professions, from civil engineers, the people who make bridges and stuff, museum curators, public health officials, and also, of course, you know, professors and doctors and lawyers. 
These new professions came often with professional organizations that would serve to help organize uh, these independent workers, sometimes through, you know, making sure that everybody had the same kind of education and giving people like a stamp of approval. This doctor is, you know, a member of the American Medical Association. And by doing all the things that 19th century organizations did, publishing magazines, holding feasts, you know, getting people to speak, appointing secretaries, uh, and also establishing ways of teaching and apprenticing new people to enter the professions. And this was not merely a metropolitan phenomenon. We should imagine London in particular as a magnet for ambitious people all around the British world. Gandhi came to London in the 1890s to learn law, ambitious, wanting to study really hard, and he hung around in vegetarian circles, uh, you know, speaking with philosophical radicals, reading Ruskin and Tolstoy. But he came not for the vegetarianism or the radicalism, but he came for the professional organization, for this system of uh, teaching and accreditation that would allow him to participate in uh, the kind of social capital rich life of the professions in the British world. And there's a lot of variation of work. Not everything in the 19th century was factories and professions. There was still a ton of handicraft work. Indeed, that was the vast majority of work still. But even if these trades were not organizationally changed in the 19th century, they were still really different than they were before in a way that lots of historians don't realize because the inputs that were being put into them changed drastically. Uh, there's an often quoted fact about the Crystal Palace exhibition of 1851. This was a massive world exhibition held in London uh, that was meant to showcase the new industrial might of the nation. And uh, thousands and thousands of people went there. It was one of the places where a lot of English people first saw uh, flush toilets, uh, but they also saw these massive uh, machine tools and steam pumps and the work of every single country almost was there to be exhibited and to be admired. And in the old history, people held this up as the apotheosis of these new ways of working. Here is the steam engine and the railway changing everything. And then there was a revision to this story when somebody looked into Crystal Palace and actually went, well, look, the Crystal Palace itself, this place that was hosting the exhibition, this structure of steel and glass, it was actually made not by factories, but by handicraft workers. And this is meant to show the persistence of, you know, craft manufacturing even here at this supposed height of factory work. But I counter that and I say, look, Crystal Palace is a perfect example of the new kind of industry because the glass and the steel that is uh, making the frame for the Crystal Palace, it might have been made by hand, but it was heated. The energy in that came from coal, and it was a lot of energy. Glass requires you to get fire hot enough that it can melt sand evenly. That requires tons of energy, energy that will only come from the cheap energy regime of modernity. Another uh, 
process that we might not spend that long time on in this episode is the development of a new way of organizing work in American Germany, the large bureaucratic company. These rise after uh, 1860. The uh, big showcase one is the American Railroad. Uh, and they're distinctive because in them, you get the rise of modern bureaucracy and the rise of modern management. There's an increasing distinction in these corporations between the people who own the company and the people who actually make the decisions about things. These decisions are made increasingly by an expert class of salaried professionals who may or may not actually own any stake in the company. The other really interesting thing about them is that in them, people become roles. When you work in a large bureaucratic organization, it doesn't care about you as a person. It cares about you fulfilling a particular set of activities. If you don't fulfill them, someone else will. And if a machine can do it cheaper, well, that's great too. This expanded to a bunch of industries that benefited from what Alfred Chandler called the economies of scale and scope. Uh, he identifies it as uh, due to the fact that railways expand markets and thus allow people to you know, get over diminishing returns that they get from uh, uh, making things bigger. But I also think that it happens because of the rise of cheap energy. A lot of the new vertically integrated decentralized organizations that business historians hold up as, you know, the precursors to the modern uh, organization of American capitalism are based on cheap energy. Brewing, iron and steel making, the railway, chemical manufacturing, all of these require huge amounts of energy inputs. And I would be really remiss if I didn't talk about uh, other kinds of organizations, because so far I've just been talking about organization from the perspective of work. But people did not use organizations just to make money. They also used organizations to have fun. And I actually think that this is the uh, origin of the Western organization, is from groups of people in the city in the 18th century getting together uh, in formal organizations in order to have fun with strangers as a way of making a manufactured sense of trust with people who they might not be able to know. And as these things picked up, people realized that they enabled them to do new kinds of activity because they helped them organize their day-to-day -day life. And they also allowed them to make increasingly specialized kinds of groups to accomplish increasingly specialized kinds of goals. So if we look at the 19th century voluntary organization, they're pretty much anything that you might think they are. Uh, there's gentlemen's clubs, there's sex clubs, there are friendly societies, which are basically like insurance agencies that also have parties. Uh, there are pressure groups for every single thing that you could think there's a pressure group for, uh, from political reform to animal welfare to anti-slavery to anti-drinking to anti-Sabbatarian you know, Sabbatarian movements to pro-Sabbatarian movements to moral reform societies to veg everything. Everything had its organization, its secretary, its group. And many of these in the 19th century were not simply local affairs, but were arranged on national branch models, where local societies would correspond with a central hub manned by a professional staff, which maybe would even have a magazine or a newsletter or a parade or a feast. 
And also, for some, participation in this stopped being about the face-to-face -face interaction with people in the street and more about a, you know, pragmatic, utilitarian participation where they're getting a service out of belonging to an organization. They pay some money to an organization whose goals they admire. They read a magazine that they get every month. Maybe they participate in some activities, but their participation by and large becomes virtual. And I think that these organizations were important, all of them, not just the voluntary associations, but the factories, the professions, uh, the uh, uh, clubs, they were important because they changed the way that people in the city were identified. In a rural community of lower population densities, even when people moved around a lot, you generally knew everybody you'd interact with. You can see this really clearly by the fact that before the 18th century in agricultural Britain, nine out of 10 of every single transaction was done on credit, which means that People who were doing transactions with each other, people who were shaving one another, buying food from one another, you know, digging one another's ditches, knew each other well enough to trust that they could extend credit. And this trust, this knowledge, fixes a person. You are a member of a family, a resident in a house, in a particular parish, near the house of a particular notable. Everybody knows your business and your past. You go to the inn or the pub and interact with a certain set of people. And these certain set of people know you for a long time. In the city, however, you're defined differently. There's not a single person who knows everything that you do intimately. There's not a single person who walks with you through all of your different lives, who knows you when you're at home, when you're at work, when you're with your hobbies, when with your friends, when with your family, when you go home for Christmas. There's no single person who shares all of those social designations. And this gives people a particular individuality because only they are marked out by that one unique geometry of all of those different social circles interacting in one particular person. And conversely, this individuality allows individuals to abstract out their experience far beyond uh, their day-to-day -day lives, to allow them to be able to imagine themselves not as the person who they are, but it is some kind of everyman, a member of a nation, a member of a class, a member of a particular religious group, rather than simply a member of a particular interest. They can understand that their actions have effects far beyond them and that they in turn are affected by the actions of distant others. And here again, we have the weird loneliness of modernity, because even though you have far greater choice of who you are in this modern world, fewer people can ever know you or understand you, and your identity has a particular kind of unstuckness to it. Now let's move on to uh, the second part of the, the uh episode on distant communication. And I'm going to go through this uh, rather quickly. So just as there were organizations that helped to manage the complexity of this new world of work and production that was created through cheap energy and global trade, 
there were also institutions that helped to knit people together through exchange of information over long distances. And we can imagine this just by going through the day of one of our new professionals and seeing how he gets a lot of his information. Let's make him a history professor just because I'm feeling, I don't know, wistful. So our history professor wakes up in his townhouse and over his breakfast, he reads the newspaper. And this newspaper comes over from London where it's printed. And not only does it include stories about uh, politics, you know, all the goings on in Westminster, uh, you know, the activities of local civil society organizations where, the, you know, how many toasts were drunk to the health of Peel at the, you know, local club. But it also has world news. And you look on the byline and the world news is actually quite recent. It happened only yesterday. It came very, very quickly. And it came very, very quickly, even though it's from, you know, such distant places as the Cape of South Africa or Australia. It came so quickly because it is coming through a network of international telegraph cables uh, that are organized by these consortiums of news agencies, many of which survive to these days, like the Associated Press and Reuters. And after reading stories of this particular British world knit together by the telegraph lines, our professional takes the carriage into work and perhaps on the way reads a railway novel uh, in his seat. One of these new books that are meant to give uh, quick, exciting reading experiences to the urban commuter. Once at the office, our professor checks his mail, which is carried from the four corners of the country, uh, and even uh, has a message there from one of his correspondents in South Africa. It's carried from the mail steamer that goes from Buenos Aires over to London, you know, quite frequently. And he looks at the stamp, which is, you know, uh, governed by an international institution about uh, international post exchange. And he opens up the letter and it's a description of a Argentinian railway company who our historian is thinking of investing in. And he decides that, yes, he does want to make an investment. So he writes a letter and he sends it via the uh, penny post or a messenger the quick 15 minutes walk over to his broker in Exchange Alley, where his broker reads the message and then walks over to the London Stock Exchange where he places an order for shares in this Argentinian railway. And that's not weird because the shares of the Argentinian railway are not traded in Argentina, but are instead traded in the London Stock Exchange, whose prices are transmitted through telegraph all across the wide corners of the world on a, you know, second by second basis. And then our uh, history professor puts down that letter and picks up another, and it is a personal letter from his brother. And this reading experience is different. The, the personal letter has his brother's handwriting on it, even though he's all the way off in Canada or somewhere else, you know, quite distant. And this handwriting are... Uh, history professor has been trained to identify as a synecdoche of his absent brother. He takes a sentimental moment and imagines that he is touching the same paper that his brother touched, and he sniffs it and he imagines that he can smell the air of the Canadian, you know, coast on it. And these are the ways that this person's world is made up. 
through printed materials that are abstracted and pushed through the world in new uh, methods of communication and transport. And not only are these kind of distant and cold, like the news of the world that our uh, history professor might read in the morning. Not only are these things that help him get profit, like his news of the Argentinian railway, but they can also be deeply sentimental, deeply affecting. These technologies are not merely technologies, but they're cultural objects that people have deep associations with. The letter from the loved one can be an object of deep care and affection. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of a Historian. Uh, if you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, post us on Reddit, tweet about us. Uh, do people dig anymore? If they do, then dig this, I guess. Thanks very much for Jonathan Lear for making the music, and thank you to Duncan Barton for making the image. Uh, I will see you guys tomorrow.